this is the Commonwealth City Church Podcast. Thanks for listening. Commonwealth is a church in Lexington, Kentucky. For more info, visit our website at commonwealthcitychurch.com and follow us on Instagram at comcitychurch. We hope you enjoy the message. Well, good morning. Uh, I'm excited to to go through the book of Psalms over this summer. Um, for those of you I don't know, my name is Andrew, and it's good to hang out with you this morning. I'm really encouraged to be able to kick off Psalm 1 today. And I'm going to start, we're going to get into the scripture the moment where we stand and read the word of God together. But I just want to start with, with some, some things uh, to kind of introduce us to the Psalms. And the first one would, would be, I was reading this week about Psalm 1 specifically, Uh, The first one would be the understanding that Psalm 1 is kind of the gatekeeper to the whole Psalter, which is the book of Psalms. Uh, It's not only the gatekeeper to that, but a lot of of scholars even say that it becomes almost the gatekeeper or the entrance for much of our understanding of the entire scriptures, of the entirety of the Bible. Tim Keller actually says that Psalm 1 is the gatekeeper for the entire story of the Bible. And speaking of that, I'm going to do a shameless book recommendation here. Um, if you're looking for a great daily devotional or just a great thing to, to be centered in, this book right here, it's called The Songs of Jesus uh, by Tim Keller. It's a, it's a daily to date like devotional. So every day is dated as it goes through the Psalms. And it's just, it's a great resource, a great way to practice that meditating night and day on the word of God. Um, Amazon or other places certainly have this. If you're looking for a great thing to add, maybe to the summer or maybe to your, to just to your everyday devotional life, I've gone through this multiple times. So it, even if it's the same date, the same psalm every day, every year, I still think it's a great, a great thing to do, a great thing to practice to be a part of. So as we kind of look into this this introduction of of the psalms this morning, I, I want to read some quotes to you. One's from a church father named Athanasius, and he wrote this concerning the Psalms. He said, whatever your particular need or trouble, from this book, the Psalms, you can select a form of words to fit it so that you can learn the remedy to your every ill. That that is found in the Psalms. That we are to practice this book with purpose. And it's not just to listen but it's to join in writing. I'm not saying writing scripture, but to write, like writing new scripture, but to write the Psalms out, to write them out yourselves, to pray them, to sing them as we just did, and ultimately to meditate on them. Uh, Tim Keller writes, the Psalms lead us to do what the psalmists do, to commit ourselves to God through pledges and promises, to depend on God through petition and expressions of acceptance, to seek comfort in God through lament and in complaint, and to find mercy from God through confession and repentance, to gain new wisdom and perspective from God through meditation, remembrance, and reflection. That there is some, a great opportunity for us to really engage, to really dive in, and really spend time in the Psalms, not just for the summer, but every single day. There's 150 of them. You can dive in and, and, and start to unpack them as a daily part of your rhythm. If you added one to your life every single day, you would get through the book of Psalms twice, a little bit more than twice, in a given year. It would be a great practice for us to do together, for for you to do individually. Um, And I also want to show kind of the expression of how the way the Psalms are written. They are not written like any other book in the Bible. 
They're written as a form of poetry. They're literally written as songs, oftentimes, with stanzas and choruses, things that were intended to be sung, intended to be expressed. You get to see a unique artistic expression through the Psalms. And I think this is really important for us because it communicates something beautiful about God. That God doesn't just try to speak to us through narrative or through prose or through like really rigid information. But in fact, God wants to meet us at every level of our created existence. He wants to reach us and inform us and empower us and embrace us at a heart and soul level as well. Not everybody might not feel like they could sit down and write a position paper about these deep theological truths that we find biblical. But I bet we could express who God is and our response to him maybe in song or in art or in poetry or in some way of, of meeting Jesus in the way that he's uniquely made us. Like, I, I'm not the artist at all, but I get to hang out with my dude Eric back here in the back, and I get to see the way God's gifted him in creating art and creating um, drawings and tunes and all sorts of things that he has the ability to make. Shout out at God of Pencils, right, back there in the back on his Instagram story. Um, <laughs> But I get to hang out with Eric, and I get to see, like, I don't know that I've ever heard Eric preach a sermon. I don't know that I've ever heard Eric be able to, to write out a commentary of one of the books of the Bible. But I have hung out with Eric, and I've seen him utilize his giftedness to love people, to be compassionate, to be generous, to be gracious, to be grateful, and to be able to express the beauty of some things that God has created. And that can oftentimes be just as powerful a sermon as somebody that's a super gifted communicator or just as powerful a piece of writing as somebody that could write unbelievable narrative prose. That God wants to gift us with himself at every level of ourselves, including the most intimate. The Psalms are also the evidence that God cares about our emotions. In fact, we could name off 50 plus emotions right now that are evidenced through the Psalms. And yes, it's oftentimes from the perspective of man, but I want to do a little, Kurt mentioned this earlier, that, that it's God signing his, his name at the bottom of David's prayer journal. I thought there's a great way to communicate that. Like we do believe that the Psalms are still absolutely the inerrant word of God and in some ways communicate the grace of God that he allows flawed man to start at a spot that theologically sometimes is difficult. Like David doesn't always start at the best places in his response to some things that have happened in his life, in his response to some things that he, that he understands about God. But one of the things that's beautiful about the promises of God is that he carries us to completion. He's just as concerned with our starting point as he is with our ending point. And he understands all of us along the way. That Psalms are absolutely the word of God. And we get to see him and his character declared in the Psalms. And then we get to see ourselves depicted in light of who God is. Might we respond in a way that delights in him? Um, Psalms also are evidence. I mentioned that God cares just as much as our, about our emotions as he does about our theology sometimes. Not every book in the Bible is going to be Romans. Not every book is going to be Ephesians. We need the moments for the Psalms to teach us, to communicate to us, to invite us 
into making the delight of God palatable for us. That it starts often with the vulnerability of man. It communicates the unbelievable character of God, but it makes delighting in him palatable for us. And here's another little cool thing that, that it, sometimes it just doesn't hop, jump out. We've already sung it today. That his delight is in the law of the Lord. Like when you think about when that was written contextually, the concept of law was only looking backwards, the things that had been written up to that point. But now when I read that in 2019, when you read that now, today's current modern age, and we see the law of the Lord, we know that it's bigger than just the first five books of the Bible. We know that it's bigger than just what the Jewish people would have called the Torah. We know that it's bigger than Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. We know that in, in the psalmist writing this, which happened in a moment of time, the Holy Spirit prophetically intended for it to include that this was going to include the gospel of Jesus that we delight ourselves in. And so we read this now from a vantage point of we have a clear view of the fullness and the completion of God's declared and lived out word in the person of Jesus. And so without further ado, let's read Psalm 1 again together. So let's stand, if you will, for the reading of God's word, if you're able. And we're going to read Psalm chapter 1 together. This is the word of the Lord. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. The word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, I just thank you so much for uh, just the realities of that text, the realities of that truth proclaimed uh, over us, before us, in, in, and it will come along aside, uh, beside us and even be still standing when we're not. Um, Lord, we're so grateful for that truth. We're so grateful that um, we get to delight in your law, but your law is a person. Your truth is a person. It's Jesus. We get to delight in him. So grateful um, that you plant for us, as uh, you plant us always beside streams. And you're always provisional with the things that you give us. And Lord, we love you and we thank you. We pray today that you give our, us eyes to see and ears to hear your truth in this text. Um, and that you speak a sermon, preach a sermon that our hearts need to hear. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You guys can be seated. That was awesome. I loved reading that together in unison. We need to do that more often. I, I kind of got to the point where I like paused mid moment. I was just listening and I'm like, oh wait, no, I need to continue to read as well. Um, as we get into Psalm 1, I want to look at the very first word that we, we happen to see. It's, this is not going to be on the screen in a slide, but it's, it's up there if, if we have the verse up there. But it says blessed or blessed is the man. Blessed is, is the one. It could be it's not specific to gender. Blessed is the one who walks in the counsel of the wicked, or who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. And this word, blessed, um, it's one of those churchy words that we use a lot, you know, or maybe you've ever heard the, the Beatitudes in Matthew chapter 5. And, and even some people, it's funny for me, like I can't even train myself to say blessed. It probably just is blessed, but it's like the old growing up in church 
mentality of me just says blessed, you know, because I don't know, I just, does it sound right? It doesn't feel right, but blessed, it's, it's really a, a, a synonym for just being happy, being joyful. And, and, and a lot of times there's, you know, we can make that deeper than it is, but in its origin and in its, at its surface, this starts off with an invitation. If you want to find joy, you want to find happiness, you want to find purpose, you want to be blessed, here's how it starts. I heard one commentator talk about this passage of Scripture specifically, and they talk about how that the, hardly ever in the Bible does, does it say, blessed is he or blessed is he who seeks blessing. Blessed is he who seeks blessing. But instead, there's always a higher aim. And the commentator said, when it comes to being blessed, the aim is for righteousness. And when you aim for righteousness, you're provided with joy and blessing and happiness. But if you aim just for joy and happiness, oftentimes you're provided with neither that nor righteousness. When we just seek the things that might make us circumstantially happy and not a greater thing or a greater understanding of what God is longing to provide with us, I think we miss out on what this blessing is talking about. And then we get into these postures. So blessed is he or blessed is the one who walks, who stands or doesn't walk, doesn't stand and doesn't sit. There, these are really interesting words that the author uses, walking, standing, and sitting. And it kind of is an, uh, an increase. So it starts with walk, then stand is not um, the opposite of walking in the sense of like a resting moment. Um, and then sitting is not the, the most final like opposite of walking, like, oh, I'm sitting down, I'm taking a break, taking a breather. But it is, it is actually constructed with a trajectory of belonging, and if you know anything about um, like Greek thought and Greek culture, like if you would have been a follower of a, of a Greek philosopher or of somebody like Socrates or Plato, you would have sat with them. You would have sat in their teaching. You would have sat in their way. And the concept of sitting in like this cultural context would have been that of belonging. And so it starts with walking towards something you want to belong with. I want to be clear here. There's often times in scripture, and we even sing a song about it, uh, about like, I'm prone to wander. We sing a song that's, uh, what is that? Come thou fount? You know, prone to wander. And, and this is not a wandering in a wicked council, a wandering in among sinners, and a wandering to a seat of scoffers. This is a delighting towards these things. That's, that's something the, the contrast that the author is making really, really clearly is this is not accidental, but it's implied that the person walking in these ways delights. Now, you might be saying, well, well, then that doesn't apply to me because I don't delight. I don't love hanging out with wicked people. I don't love hanging out with sinners. I don't love hanging out with people that are scoffers or bemoaners or, or people that are trying to negate who God is and what he's done. I don't, I don't do that. So that doesn't apply to me. But the reality is the application comes in us noticing that the author, which is ultimately the Holy Spirit, doesn't give us a warning of don't. Don't walk with sinners. Don't sit with scoffers. Don't walk with the wicked. Don't stand with sinners. Don't sit with scoffers. It's not a command of don't. It's rather an invitation to understand your influences. And that what, what influence, what we delight in ultimately influences us. 
And there's only one thing that we can delight in, which we're going to get to. There's only one thing we can delight in that will ultimately provide for us or be for us that path of blessing, that way of understanding, and that's to delight in the law of the Lord. And so anything else that we are running to serves as an influence that is more synonymous with the wicked, the sinner, or the scoffer than it is the law of the Lord. And oftentimes, the things that compete for us, compete for our faith, compete for our belief, compete for our joy, they're, they're not super evil, destructive things. Maybe oftentimes they're just morally neutral. Oftentimes they're, they're even good things that we might position in our lives to have an influence over us. Like friends can be a good thing, but if they're not friends that are drawing us deeper into the Lord, then like we're probably not going to end up the way of a tree. A, a cell phone in its nature is not a bad thing. But when I reach for this every morning, before I reach for this, and I'm thinking that on myself, and I might even be able to say, well, it's my, my alarm. <laughs> you know, I use it for my alarm. You know, I got to turn my alarm off. Like, I need to train myself that this needs to be my wake-up call. Not from a point of legalism. The point, point of point is, I don't want my leaves to wither. I don't, I don't want my leaf to fail. I don't want my, to lose the greenery that I have available to me. I want to be planted by a stream of water and let my roots go down that. And so even morally neutral things can influence us that is more synonymous with the counsel of the wicked, with the way of sinners and the seed of scoffers. And I want us to recognize today, a question we'll have at the end, is where do we find ourselves walking, standing, and sitting? Where do we find ourselves doing that? You know, I mean, and, and it, can be, it can be anything. Like, sometimes I'm embarrassed at how many baseball statistics that I know comparative to how much scripture that I know. Or I'm embarrassed on how much I'm in tune with the recruiting of UK or how much, no, it could be about anything. You might be so up to date on news and politics and technology and so, so, so far behind on the truth of God's word. And, and all that declares is that Psalm 1 is for you today. It's for you today to return to the streams that can bring life and won't wither and prosper you and allow you to stand in the judgment. And so notice that it's not a commanding don't. Don't walk in the way of sinners, but it's a contrast. You want to be blessed? You want joy? You're going to have to do something counterintuitive to what your fleshly heart delights in. You're going to have to do something that only your spiritual heart can delight in. And then it says this. So there comes the contrast. So blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, not in the way of sinners, not in the seat of scoffers, but his delight, or their delight is in the law of the Lord. And on, their, on his law, Jesus' law, he meditates night and day. And then it paints this picture. We're going to get to that part. It's going to be our conclusion. Paints this picture. He is like a tree planted by streams and water that yields its fruit in season and out of season. And its leaf does not wither. And all he does, he prospers. But the wicked are not so. They are like chaff that the wind drives away. First thing I want to point out here um, is that when it says that he, on his law he meditates day and night, uh, you can't be a Sunday-only tree. 
That's going to be the first thing we talk about today. If Sundays are your moment for Jesus in the week, you're not going to be much of a tree. All right? Like, this is at best. Like, I think that we, I stand by what we get to, to be a part of every single week. I think we do a really intentional job of being in the Word of God together, of, of even going through it. We're really, really convicted and committed to going through it verse by verse. And, and even our preaching style being a way that communicates to you how to study the Word of God, how to study the Bible. But if this is the only moment that you're getting in God's Word in a week, it is going to be more likely than not that you wither. More likely than not that your leaves fail, leaves fail. More likely than not that, that this is not what he means by the sufficiency of the stream for you. So if all of your community, if all of your accountability, and if all of your connectedness to the word of God happens in this hour and a half on a Sunday morning, I would love to join Jesus in inviting you into something a little bit more when it comes to deepening your relationship with Christ, when it comes to deepening your understanding of the scriptures, and when it comes to deepening, first and foremost, your delight in Jesus. This is at best, now I'm a nerd about this, like I get on my Apple TV all the time, and I watch movie trailers. I don't know if you do this or not, but if I'm bored for like 10 minutes, I'll watch like three movie trailers. And I will decide from those trailers whether or not I want to see the rest of the films, right? Um, I do this all the time. I even get really giddy when there's new, new trailers out. It's like, all right, I get to watch something new today. And I might not even be interested. Sometimes it's in a foreign language, and I'm like, no, probably not going to go see that one, you know? But this is at best, at best, the movie trailer for you when it comes to understanding the Word of God. And I, he would love to invite you into understanding him fully by devouring and delighting in his Word and devouring and delighting tasting and seeing. We'll talk about that in a moment. Jesus himself. And so you can't meditate day and night if you only do it on Sunday. That's kind of point number one today. Then the next thing it goes to is he's planted like a tree that yields its fruit in season or out of season. There's something really interesting here when he talks about seasons. Um, First and foremost, it's that seasons change. Seasons change. There is a false joy and an easy happiness that comes when we try to judge and base our Christianity or our life of following Jesus only on the good seasons, only on the easy seasons. There's even a deceitful, deceitfulness to this. And here's what I mean by that. Notice when Jesus teaches in the New Testament, he says, the fool is like a man who builds his house on the sand and the wise man builds his house upon the rock. And what happens for them to determine what the foundation is? Sunshine and ease? Ease and breeze? No. What happens? The winds come and the waters come and the storms come and they beat against that house and the one against the sand does what? Built on sand, falls. But the one on the rock remains. Notice that there's an emphasis and even an implication that there are going to be seasons in our life that, if, that will do the testing of what our faith is established on. If you only are judging your Christian life on the most optimal season with the least amount of suffering and the least amount of difficulty and the least amount of opposition, like first and foremost, you're of an unbelievable minority in the world, but it's also a way the enemy might deceive you. And he might deceive you and say, what you need to chase are easy Christian seasons as opposed to let your roots go in the streams that God has provided you to be planted beside. And so there can be a false joy in us just being people 
that are seasonal believers that tend to say, well, Andrew, you know, and I, and I've, I can even do this. I can say this to myself. It was easier being a pastor when all these things are optimal. It's harder being a pastor when these things. It's easy to follow Jesus when all these things are optimal. It was easy before the relationship ended. It was easier before, if I could just go back to that. And sometimes we even get caught up in this. Like if you think about your Christian highs and lows, like I bet if I were to ask you, what's the easiest, what's been the easiest season for you to be a believer? Could something come to your mind? The season where God was the most provisional, where it felt the most fulfilling, where it was the most easy, the most natural, or even a moment. You know, oftentimes that's like a camp moment or a conference moment or a mission trip moment. It's like, oh, like that was it. And then the real world happens and seasons change. And the psalmist implies that when these seasons change, the evidence of whether or not you're a season chaser or a stream chaser is what happens to your leaves. If you're a seasonal Christian, fall will happen. Winter will happen. And you'll wonder why this tree is an evergreen. But the psalmist writes, ultimately the Holy Spirit writes, we're to be like trees planted by streams of water that in the midst of the most intense drought, in the midst of the harshest winter, in the midst of the most you know, intense scorching heat, we yield fruit and our leaf does not wither. It's easy to just base our Christianity on our seasons as opposed to recognize our streams. The concept of being, a, this is probably something I should have been, was up here earlier, Ben and Blair were up here earlier, and probably should have taken a moment this week and sit under the rabbinical teaching of Ben Connor, Rabbi Benjamin back there. Um, because I've, I've thought a lot in this context of this verse and really some other things just in my life the past couple of weeks about being a farmer. And I don't know much about being a farmer because I was raised in a subdivision in Lawrenceburg, Kentucky, and then lived in Lexington, Kentucky after that. So my, my farming skills uh, are, are lower. I feel like if I'm around Ben, I said this uh, yesterday, we got to paint here, which Danny, thanks so much for um, what you've done to transform this building. And it's been a gift to us and Hopefully we're a gift to you guys as well. And so we got to spend some time in here painting and Steve Moore was with us yesterday. And uh, I referred to Steve as like the manhood Yoda. Like when he walks in, I just feel like all of my ratings of manhood just rose a little bit. Like if I were like a, you know, a video game, my ratings would have risen as he was explaining how to like, I was just drinking deeply from his wisdom. Ben's that way with farming. You know, if I hang out with Ben, it's like, it's like a cheat code, and I just became a little more agricultural and a little, you know, uh, and, and a little more proud to eat like farm fresh ribeyes, you know, so that's what I do when I hang out with them. But, but, but I think about farming. I've never met a farmer, you know, I've got to hang out um, with, with farmers a lot, mostly because my dad is an avid hunter and is always trying to find a, a farm to bless, a farmer to bless, and families to bless, even as he. Um, harvest game and whatnot, things like that. And so been around farms a lot in my life, even though I'm not very skilled myself, but I've never seen a farmer with like beautifully soft, clean hands, manicured nails, like no grizzle to them at all. They just go out and they stand on their back porch and they look over this field that's just grown up and weeds and not excavated. And, you know, it's like, well, you know, 
Maybe God will grow something. I've never seen a farmer do that. I've also never seen a farmer be able to make corn grow. Like, you, like by declaring it, by commanding it, by, by even saying, corn, like you must grow. But, but all he's done is he has done the work of excavating land, of providing irrigation, of tilling soil, of removing obstacles for growth, of planting, of crop rotating. He's done all this work. And then he takes this seed and he puts it in the ground and he trusts that the science and the chemistry and the natural provision and ultimately God grows that little seed in the field that he's plowed and tilled and excavated and de-weeded and all that stuff and irrigated. He's trusting it as he stands back with his finished work and effort. He sees that seed blossom into a harvesting crop, right? I've never seen a farmer just buy a plot of land, throw his hands in the air and say, man, I really hope we have corn. I really hope we have this, right? I go to the farmer's market often. Like these are people that are proud of, of the things that they have in the back of their trucks, but they didn't end up there like accidentally. They ended up there on purpose, right? And so in the exact same way, I think that we as Christians are reminded to do the work of a farmer when it comes to fighting for blessing and delight and joy. That we can't make it happen. I can't wake up in the middle of my most glum day and say, I want to be joyful today. But what I can do is meditate on the days and nights that it's easy and that it's hard and trust that my meditation and delighting in the Lord will produce a harvest of joy in my life that doesn't happen accidentally and doesn't happen coincidentally and doesn't happen. And sometimes God can do it coincidentally. Like sometimes he can just interrupt, like even moments of your apathy, God can interrupt with an unbelievable blessing and favor. But I think he invites us to join him. The word around this campus that a lot of people know really well is a word synergy. Shout out CSF. Um, so the word synergy is a cool sounding word, but most people don't even know what it means. The concept of synergism is working with or working together. And when we comes to understanding our relationship with Jesus, specifically what would be a big churchy word called our sanctification, that it's a synergistic relationship that we work with God who is doing the work of sanctifying us. We join in that work. And if we do that, we might look a lot more like farmers. We might look a lot more like farmers that are fighting for removing obstacles from our life or joining Jesus in the removal of things like sin and, and things like weeds or, or negative influences and, and doing the work of tilling and plowing and hoping and, and trusting even on the good seasons and the bad seasons that there are streams of water provided for us in the provision of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And if our roots go into those, Sometimes it might feel hard for our roots to go into those. But if our roots go into those in the good seasons and in the bad, we will produce fruit. And then the contrast is that if you just chase the seasons, you're going to be like the chaff, which is a fancy word to say trash. 
We don't use the word chaff very much, but chaff was, was when they were done harvesting, when they were done gathering the crops, like it was the stuff that wasn't brought in. It wasn't brought into the bins. It was the excess or the, the you know, like the leafy parts around it or the, like the stuff around a corn stalk that's not the corn. That stuff is the chaff and it blows away. And so we get this reminder to don't go chase seasons or as the unbelievable theologians TLC once said, don't go chase waterfalls, <laughs> but please stick to the rivers that you're used to. You're welcome. You're welcome. Jeremiah chapter two says it this way, that my people have committed two evils. The first is they forgot me, the fountain of living water. And the second Brian touched on this when he preached in John earlier this year. The second is they've dug out for themselves cisterns that can't hold water, that are broken. They've done two things. They've forgotten that I'm the stream. And they've dug for themselves cisterns or wells that can't produce any water and are trusting that drinking dirty water from broken cisterns is going to sustain them. And it's not. And so the, the emphasis is don't chase the seasons of just when it was easy to be a Christ follower. Or don't look for the seasons, if you're not a follower of Jesus, don't look for the season where it becomes easiest to follow. But join in the work of farming and training your roots for both good and bad seasons. And listen, that's done easily, most easily in community together. That's why we're making this big emphasis on being family on purpose. Wednesday night, got to take part and be part of this precept study through the book of Judges. And... um, I just know for us guys, we were down in the, in the bottom, in the basement together. Like just walking out of that room, I felt like I had people fighting with me and fighting for me for fruit to be displayed in my life. And I felt like I was fighting with and fighting for people for fruit to be displayed in their life. And if there were weeds in their life that they can't see, gosh, and I can, I'm going to pluck them out or I'm going to help them. Or I'm going to put on my work gloves. And if there's things in my life that I can't see or I'm blind to, I hope that they join Jesus in the work of of removing those influences from my life so that I too can be like that tree planted in by streams of water that yields its fruit in season and out of season. That farming is really a lot of times a community effort. And as we kind of bring to this part of conclusion, it says our circumstances, our circumstances, our seasons, they change. But the provision of, of the Lord is that our streams do not. So we ask the second question: what is our stream? What is our stream? We could stop there. We could say, you know, don't base your Christianity on seasons. Base it on streams of rivers of, the, of living water. We could stop there. But the problem is, is we've said this too many times from this stage, that all of the Bible points to Jesus. And so we're going to ask the question of where is Jesus in Psalm 1 today? Where is Jesus? And he's throughout at multiple places. But uh, the first place we see, really see him is, is this concept of we delight in the law of the Lord, or we delight in the word of the Lord. It is, it is the Hebrew word Torah, which means the, which a lot of times means the first five books, but the word Torah literally just means instruction. And as we read this now, we know that the instruction of God didn't end with, with Job right before Psalms. It wasn't Genesis through Job. The instruction of God includes the entire counsel of God, the entirety of his word, and the entirety of the story of Jesus. And so we see in John 1, as we've gone through John together, that Jesus is the living word of God. 
He's the living word of God, that he, God's word put on flesh and dwelt among me and you, dwelt among us, or as Eugene Peterson says, he moved into our neighborhood. And, and so we get the whole of it now, and we get to understand that this gospel, which is good news, means good news, is whole and finished in the work of Jesus. In fact, he said in Matthew chapter 5 that he didn't come to abolish the law, the instruction. He came to complete it. He came to fulfill it. And Philippians chapter 1 verse 6 says that God is always in the work of completing that which he starts. And Jesus was the completion of the law. The author of Hebrews would write it this way, that he, he didn't just come to, he didn't come to like bemoan the old covenant. He came to exchange it for a better covenant, to make it obsolete and to offer a different one. And ultimately we get to see that that law of the Lord is what we know as the gospel of Jesus Christ. Throughout the Psalms, there's multiple places where we talk about the word of the Lord or the words of the Lord or the instructions of the Lord. And, and we even say things like they're sweeter than honeycomb or, or in Psalm, and one of the other Psalms, it says that we taste and see his goodness. And I want us to understand even the sensory part of that, that we want the word of the Lord to be on our, in our mouths, like on our lips, on our tongues, like it has a tasting component to it. It's not just we have invited to read and hear and listen and understand how good his word is. We've invited, been invited to taste it and to see it. That there's this emphasis on God's word being fluent to us as believers. I want to encourage you with something here. When you became a believer in Jesus Christ, if you believe in Jesus, it says that his spirit is pleased to dwell in you. Romans chapter 8, it says that his spirit bears witness with your spirit. So it is communicating constantly with your spirit that all these promises of God are true. And what that means is that you have an internalized instructor in the Holy Spirit that wants to teach you to live emotionally, to live consistently, to fight sin, to restore both yourself and other people, to be a reminder of all the things of the gospel all the time. He wants to do that with you. But you know what else he does? He gives you other people to do that with you too. Like I get to hang out with people all the time and we have to remind ourselves the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we're gonna get into exactly what that is here as we close. We have to remind ourselves of these things to taste and see and to be, to be, for them to be streams of life-giving water for us. That when, when the enemy heaps shame on me to be reminded of what the gospel invites me to believe. That when I tend to think that I am most approved of when I do everything right or when my, when my life of obligation meets its standards and to be reminded of the gospel. When I'm convinced that Jesus would love a better, more improved version of me than he loves the current version of me, I'm invited to drink deeply, to have my roots drink deeply from the streams of the gospel. And ultimately, here's the part I want to draw an emphasis to. It says this, Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment. Now, reading that in English, you might think, well, I don't want to stand in the judgment. That sounds difficult. So I want to be like the wicked. No, that's not what, it's not what the author is implying here. When he says, will not stand in the judgment, it means, there's almost another translation that you could offer there, and it really means that he will not be established in God's kingdom or his governing or his reigning or his judgment. Basically, when the judgment of God comes, the wicked, it's not that they won't be standing. They won't be there. They will be obliterated by God's 
rightful anger against sin. This is the one half of the gospel we don't talk about very often. Is that his wrath burns against sin. And it does so wholly and perfectly and righteously. I mean, just the other day we had a conversation of what makes a person good? What makes a person bad? Well, what's your standard of goodness? If, you're stand, if, if I'm comparing myself to like a sex trafficker, I'm a pretty good dude. But if I'm comparing myself to a holy God, I don't stand a chance. Psalmist would write in a couple chapters more that literally no one does. There is no one righteous. No, not even one. And the Apostle Paul would read from that in the book of Romans. There's no one that can stand up as a good dude or a good gal next to a holy God. And the reality is, is because of that, judgment comes and wrath comes and consequence come and punishment comes because God is still glorified in his holiness, burning against sin and death and, you know, and, and anger towards things that are unholy and things that are wicked. But here's the truth of the gospel. If we believe in Jesus, when the fire of, and wrath of God come, we're left standing, not destroyed. We're left victorious, not obliterated. We're left established as his kingdom that's coming on earth as it is in heaven. We're left because we've not been somebody that chases the seasons. And we've not been somebody that sits in the council of the wicked or the sinners or the scoffers. But we delight in the Lord and we meditate on him day and night. And the truth is, why do we stand? Because we meditate on the goodness of the gospel of Jesus Christ that says that that sin still needed to be punished and it was paid for and punished in the glorious work of Jesus on my behalf. Like Jesus wasn't just some hero that makes for a good story. Jesus was the payment, the literal payment of your sin against the wrath of God, that instead of it encompassing and obliterating me and you, it did so to Jesus. That that cross, which becomes such an artistic piece for those of us that follow Christ, that cross is a symbol of God's executed judgment on our behalf against Jesus for me and you. Jesus took that and 2 Corinthians chapter 5, it says that he who knew no sin became sin so that in him we might get to become the righteousness of God, that we can stand in the face of that judgment. Friends, that is really, really good news. And if you're not a believer today, if you don't put your faith and trust in Jesus, if you don't trust Jesus as that for you, then when judgment comes, you won't be left standing. That's, that's the bad news. And there are millions of people on the planet don't trust in Jesus, and if and when the judgment comes, or not if, but when the judgment comes, won't be left standing, but only those who hope in the Lord, and only those that delight in the entirety of his gospel, night and day, that find their identity in him, will be. And so I've got these questions that we're going to put up, and this is how we're going to end. Just three for us to look at today. Just some questions of inventory for your heart as we move into a time of communion where we get to participate and remember the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. So it's these questions. Where do you find yourself walking, standing, and sitting? What are you delighting in? Where do you find yourself going to on the moments that are frustrating or difficult or depressing or you didn't get your way? Where do you find yourself delighting in in the moments that are like the happiest part of your week? Are the things of Christ 
or some other things, because if it's other things, they might be good for a moment. Not going to leave you bearing fruit in season, out of season. How can you come to depend more on the streams, ultimately streams of living water found only in Jesus, than on seasons for your joy? How can you come to depend more on streams than on seasons? And the answer to that could be a commitment to be in the word of God. It could be inviting someone that's in this room that literally came to church with you to start engaging the word of God with you together. I'm going to pray that for some of you today. Some of you guys have really good friendships, and it doesn't include encouraging people in the gospel. It needs to start including encouraging people and encouraging one another and sharpening one another in light of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so if you don't do that with a friend today, or you're thinking, I don't know if they would like that. They've just been coming to church with me. I don't know if they would like me to talk to them about Jesus throughout the week. We'll put it to test. Talk to them about Jesus throughout the week and see what happens. How can you come to depend more on streams than on seasons? And then last, take inventory of your delight in the Lord and your desire in the Lord. How might your affections and delight in Christ increase today? How might they increase? I hope that it's by looking that you don't stand in judgment on anything of your merit, but you stand in judgment on everything from his life, death, and resurrection for you on that cross and victorious over that grave. And I hope that that becomes a sweet, sweet treasure for you and a sweet, sweet truth for you to say, it is only through the finished work of Jesus Christ that I have a prayer And he doesn't just give me a chance. He promises to make me a tree planted by a stream that will yield fruit in season of good and in season of bad and will never, ever wither. May that be our understanding and our application of this psalm today.